My name is Klaus Kress and I teach criminal law and public international law in the University of Cologne. The topic of this lecture is the crime of aggression. And in the very early hours of today, 15 December 2017, the Assembly of States parties took the decision to activate the uh, International Criminal Court's jurisdiction over the crime of aggression as from 17 July 2018. The international debate that preceded this decision um, has taken almost 100 years and um, the battle lasted until the very, the very final moments. The last struggle uh, which occurred was about, and this is almost unbelievable, about the placement of specific language. The question about it, uh, whether it should be placed either in an operative or a preambular paragraph. And this is just to show the political significance of the issue. In fact, um, the activation of the court's jurisdiction over the crime of aggression will constitute a further milestone in the development um, of international criminal law. In this lecture, um, I want to proceed in two parts. Uh, in, the second, in the first part, I will uh, set out the key steps of the historic evolution uh, of the law regarding the crime of aggression. In the second part, then, I shall deal with the key components of the applicable legal regime. So let me start with the history. Uh, when we look back into the 19th century, the widely held view regarding the applicable law then was that there was a sovereign right of states, a so-called use ad bellum, to go to war to settle international disputes. So at this moment in time, no law against war, but rather the much more modest attempt by international law to somehow control by virtue of the use in bello the uh, horrendous effects of warfare. This widely held uh, view about the classic international law was then put into question after the end of the First World War, the Great War, when especially Britain challenged the wisdom of the old regime. And an attempt was made, in particular, to bring uh, the German emperor before an international, a newly established international criminal tribunal. However, as strong as the political impetus at this moment in time was, the response that politicians from Britain and France received from their own lawyers was rather dry. Uh, the famous um, 
Commission on Responsibility stated that the law at this moment in time, the applicable law at this moment in time, simply did not foresee a use contrabellum and even less an international criminalization of aggressive warfare. And so this first attempt to criminalize aggressive warfare internationally failed. But at the same time, this failed attempt was a prologue, a prologue for what uh, occurred uh, after the Second World War with the um, creative president of Nuremberg and Tokyo. These precedents, Nuremberg and Tokyo, were preceded by uh, active work in the interwar period. This work was, first of all, scholarly work. It was work by a group of um, ambitious scholars of international criminal law. Um, one important name in this respect is the uh, Romanian scholar Vespasian Pella, uh, who worked on um, first attempts of um, an international code of crimes. And Vespasian Pella, for example, in his draft code had aggression on the top. But as Vespasian Pella himself commented retrospectively, states in this interwar period uh, did virtually nothing on moving the law, international criminal law, uh, on aggression forward. Still, uh, in the interwar period, one step of fundamental importance was made. And this happened in uh, 1928 with the um, Kellogg-Briand Pact. This document, a treaty which was then um, very soon widely uh, ratified and entered into force already in 1929, this treaty put to rest the idea of a use ad bellum for the solution of international controversies. So from this moment in time, it was a watershed uh, in uh, the development of international law more generally, a law against war was into place. And it was only natural that when the Allied powers decided to move in the direction of creating a precedent for an international criminal law against aggression after the Second World War, that they would look primarily to the um, Kellogg-Briand Pact. The problem, uh, however, being that this um, pact contained a conduct rule, but one without a criminal sanction. Still, what was lacking after the First World War, the will to set a creative precedent, was present after the Second World War. And it was in particularly United States of America, represented by their charismatic uh, chief prosecutor, Robert Jackson, who um, moved in the direction to make the Nuremberg trial the watershed precedent to establish an international criminalization uh, of aggressive warfare. And this is what in the end happened. Um, the Nuremberg judgment confirmed the London Charter 
containing crimes against peace and even went so far to say that waging an aggressive um, a war of aggression, waging a war of aggression constitutes uh, the supreme international crime. So a powerful precedent was set, the, Nurem uh, the Tokyo judgment followed and confirmed uh, that precedent uh, and this precedent was taken up, confirmed, affirmed by the uh, newly established General Assembly of the United Nations um, very soon after. Regarding Tokyo, uh, it has to be said, however, that although this judgment confirmed Nuremberg, uh, it did not do so unanimously. There were a number of important dissenting opinions and probably the most important one voiced, pronounced by the Indian judge Pal. And among the many arguments Pal raised, um, I want to single out one. Pal thought that in light of persisting colonial domination in the existing world, placing all emphasis on the international value of security would create a problem of justice because it would call upon colonized people to endure lasting colonization in order to preserve, to maintain the value of international peace and security and he believed this would be a price too high to pay. And I mention this because I will come back to this point a little later uh, in the course of the historic evolution. Let us turn to the, uh, to the further development um, subsequent to Nuremberg and Tokyo. And here, most importantly, um, it must be noted that the early attempts to build on the Nuremberg principles, including the precedent on the crime of aggression, and to generalize them into a full-fledged codification failed. It very soon turned out that for many reasons um, there was no political will to build on the Nuremberg precedent and turn it into a codification. One might even go so far to say, whereas aggression initially, after the First World War, was a driving factor towards the development of international criminal law, it now had become, because of the high political sensitivity of the matter, a stumbling block. And this did not fundamentally change even in 1974, when the General Assembly uh, finally agreed on a definition on aggression on 14 December 1974 in the famous resolution 3314. Because while this resolution contains a definition of the concept act of aggression within the meaning of Article 39 
of the United Nations Charter. It is fairly clear from the structure uh, of this resolution that it is not used, the concept of act of aggression and the definition of it, as a criminal law concept. Quite to the contrary, international criminal law is only mentioned one time in this resolution, in Article 5, Paragraph 2, not with respect to the concept act of aggression, but with respect to the classic Nuremberg and Tokyo concept war of aggression. So it was impossible to say that in 1974 the international community uh, had agreed on a criminal law definition of aggression. The key criminal law term at this moment in time still remained the old Nuremberg term war of aggression and this concept was defined neither at least not fully defined, neither in the judgments of Nuremberg and Tokyo itself, nor in the 1974 uh, definition of aggression. And even in the 1990s, when international criminal law more broadly was revitalized, when uh, the legacy of Nuremberg and Tokyo more generally were rediscovered, there was no real breakthrough regarding our specific crime, the crime of aggression. The statutes for the two ad hoc tribunals, ICTY and ICTR, they included the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, including war crimes committed in non-international armed conflict, but they did not even mention the crime of aggression. And when it came to the establishment of the uh, International Criminal Court through the adoption of the Rome Statute in 1998, also a full breakthrough did not occur because once again states proved unable to agree on a definition for the crime of aggression. There are many reasons uh, why even in the 1990s the law, the criminal law against aggression did not really move forward and certainly um, political considerations, the uh, high political sensitivity of the use of force, especially for state leadership, figured prominently amongst those reasons. There is one additional uh, reason which uh, I would like to mention because I consider it um, important. At the, um, at the end of the Cold War, with the beginning of the 1990s, international human rights law had not only firmly entered the international legal landscape, consider that the um, two important international covenants had entered into force, but it also had started to influence, if you wish, international law, the international legal landscape more broadly. And international human rights law had become an important point of reference for what I would call the second generation of international criminal law, this second generation which the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia brought into existence. An international criminal law with genocide 
um, at the top, so to speak, with crimes against humanity as an independent crime under international law, no longer connected with aggressive wars and um, interstate wars, and with the crystallization of war crimes committed in non-international armed conflicts. All this was heavily influenced by international human rights law as a point of reference. How did the crime of aggression look from a point of reference of international human rights? To some observers, and I believe including some important uh, human rights organizations, it perhaps looked rather traditional, perhaps even anachronistic. Why? Because it was thought that the crime of aggression was primarily about the protection of state sovereignty as the key value. So about a rather traditional value and not one um, which is at the center of the progressive development of international human rights. And one concern even went further. And this concern identified a possible tension between, on the one hand, the second generation of international criminal law, once again, including genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, and on the other hand, the criminalization of aggression. There was a fear that a tension, a heavy tension, could arise between the three crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes on the one hand, and crimes against humanity on the other. In one particular case, when a state or a group of states decided in an extreme case of dire need, even absent an authorization by the Security Council, to use force to end a crime of genocide, crimes against humanity, or horrible systematic war crimes. Why this? Um, because um, the question of humanitarian uh, intervention would arise, which absent a authority by the Security Council um, does not have an explicit basis in the United Nations Charter. And so the fear, the concern was that through the crime of aggression, action could be punished that turned out in an extreme situation of dire need to be the only remaining means to end those other crimes which were at the focus of the second generation of international criminal justice. And um, we have to keep that point uh, in mind for a later stage of this lecture. Let me return to the Rome Statute. I said, uh, once again, no complete breakthrough because uh, states proved unable to agree about a um, definition. On the other hand, again, no complete failure, because at the Rome conference, at the very end of this conference, it was agreed at, as a part of the final compromise package to include the crime of aggression into the list of core crimes, of ICC crimes, in Article 
5, paragraph 1, and to only suspend the court's exercise of jurisdiction over the crime until states would be able to agree on a definition. And states in Rome were encouraged to work towards such a definition subsequent to the Rome Conference. Of course, predictions whether this would happen and when uh, were quite different. Um, there was uh, certainly a number of uh, skeptics predicting that um, uh, as little as it was uh, possible to achieve progress in Rome, um, as few the prospects for a future agreement. And these skeptics seem to be confirmed uh, with respect to the uh, years immediately following the Rome Conference. So until 2003, um, not really a significant movement uh, was noticeable regarding this crime. The situation changed, however, as from 2003. Uh, and I believe it is fair to say that this change uh, was largely, I would say, primarily due to the work uh, of the delegation of Liechtenstein, which took over to chair, to coordinate um, the interstate discussions on the crime of aggression. What Liechtenstein did was to institute the so-called Princeton process, and this was a more structured negotiation, a more focused negotiation on the crime of aggression that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, had taken place before. And this Princeton process achieved what diplomats call a momentum. A momentum um, which created the impression that despite all difficulties in the past, real progress was possible. And surprisingly um, to many, um, this Princeton process resulted in the year 2009 in agreement, in a consensus among those participating in this process about the substantive definition of the crime of aggression. So for the first time in 2009, a substantive definition of the crime, a crime which was now called crime of aggression, no longer the crime of waging aggressive warfare, was in existence. And this paved the way, this achievement on the substantive definition, this paved the way for placing the crime of aggression on the agenda of the first review conference on the uh, ICC statute, uh, which took place in 2010 in the capital of Uganda, uh, in Kampala. The negotiations there, uh, again, were far from easy, even though an agreed definition was present, and even though the agreement on this definition proved robust, because very important aspects remained to be settled, and the single most important aspect being the conditions for the exercise of the court's jurisdiction over the crime. The controversy uh, here lasted until the very last second, a very delicate and complex 
compromise had to be negotiated. The conference clocks uh, had to be stopped um, at the end of the Kampala compromise. But in the end, uh, with a lot of constructive spirit on all sides and with very able leadership um, by the Liechtenstein delegation, um, finally a consensus emerged that included questions of jurisdiction so that uh, the Kampala amendments of the Rome Statute on the crime of aggression could be adopted. However, even this breakthrough of 2010 did not mean immediate activation of the court's jurisdiction. Because there was a feeling among states that the change of the international legal landscape, which this breakthrough implied, required another period, so to speak, of breathtaking of preparation. And so another more limited set uh, of additional requirements for the court's activation uh, of jurisdiction was agreed upon. One being the um, ratification of the um, Kampala amendments by at least 30 states. And second, um, the elapsing of a period of seven years. That meant that the year of 2017 had to arrive for the Assembly of States Party uh, to take its final decision uh, on the activation of the Kampala Amendments. And this is this final decision uh, on the activation, um, what has happened in the very early hours uh, of today. This was the first part of the lecture. So let me proceed now to the second part of the lecture, which is the applicable law. Um, the law to be applied by the ICC uh, once its jurisdiction is activated on 17 July 2018. And I would like to start with the substantive definition of the crime and then move uh, to the question of entry into force and um, conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction. With regard to the substantive definition of the crime, which is essentially uh, encapsulated in Article 8 bis uh, of the ICC statute, it is important to distinguish between the two key components, the state conduct element and the individual conduct element. And it is fair to say that agreement on the state conduct element proved to be far more challenging. And let me start uh, with this state conduct element. The first uh, important uh, consideration is that we need a use of force by a state. And that means the concept of aggression used in this definition is a narrow one. We are not talking about uh, other forms of aggression like economic um, coercion, so it is the use of force um, as prohibited in Article 2.4 uh, of the United Nations Charter and customary international law. This use uh, of force by a state must be unlawful. So whenever there is 
um, a, an exception from the prohibition of the use of force, a recognized exception, whenever there is a, a justification, uh, there is no basis for international criminality. At this point of the debate, an important controversy arose during the negotiations between, and I simplify a little bit, two major camps of delegations of countries. One view was um, the hope to criminalize basically each and every unlawful use of force, or to be more precise, the participation in every um, unlawful use of force. The other um, group of states, however, argued for various reasons that such a definition for the purposes of international criminal law uh, would be too broad. And this conversation ended um, in what um, has come to be called a threshold requirement. And I will deal with this threshold requirement a little longer because I consider it to be the most important single uh, element of this substantive definition. And this um, threshold reads, and I quote, uh, that the use of force must constitute a manifest violation uh, of the Charter by its gravity, character and scale. So what does it mean and what is the um, purpose underlying this threshold? Let me first of all deal with the underlying considerations. They are basically twofold. There is first of all a legal consideration underlying this threshold. And the idea is that the definition of the crime of aggression enshrined in Article 8 bis should not create new law, but it should be built firmly on existing customary international law. So that precisely the same approach would be followed as with respect to the other crimes listed in the ICC statute. At the Rome conference, again, states had not the ambition to create new law, but what they wanted to do to, f to ground themselves firmly on the basis of existing customary international law. And the same logic um, should apply to the crime of aggression. And here it was important to recognize, and that follows from the historic evolution that I have set out before, that precedents on aggression were very limited, and the most important precedents in Nuremberg and Tokyo were built around the classic concept of war of aggression, which is to be considered as a narrow concept, not including each and every uh, unlawful use of force in, a, uh, in the sense of Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. So this is the legal consideration underlying the threshold requirement to stay in conformity uh, with existing customary international law. And then second, there was an important policy consideration, perhaps again twofold. The first consideration, not to overburden the court, and as with respect to the other crimes, to focus the court's 
activity on the most serious instances of violations of the underlying conduct rule. Crimes against humanity also do not criminalize each and every violation of a fundamental human rights, but only those arising on a massive or systematic scale. Again, the same logic um, uh, is to be applied with regard to the crime of aggression. And the second policy consideration was to recognize there are still important controversies surrounding the prohibition of the use of force. Controversies which it was believed should not be decided through the back door of international criminal justice that should be left to continued dialogue between states to sort out a robust consensus on those issues. The jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over the crime of aggression by virtue of this threshold should remain on a rock-solid consensus among states. From these considerations, it follows that the threshold requirement included in Article 8 bis of the ICC statute has a double function. And I would um, suggest to call it a quantitative dimension first and a qualitative dimension second. Regarding the quantitative dimension, which is articulated by the criteria gravity and scale, they imply that the use of force in question must reach a certain level of intensity to come within the criminal definition. And this level of intensity is fairly stringent, I would suggest. Um, in my opinion, it goes significantly beyond the level of intensity which the concept of armed attack um, included in Article 51 of the United Nations Charter in accordance with the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice requires. Uh, in order to somehow give a more specific content to this qualitative dimension, uh, I would suggest that indeed reference is made to the traditional precedents and then to concepts such as uh, the one used by um, public international law professor Joram Dienstein, the concept of limited war, which gives you an idea um, of the uh, intensity we are talking about. This is the um, aspect of the necessary intensity, and this is a first important avenue to ensure that the definition included in Article 8 bis of the ICC statute stays in conformity with existing customary international law. The second dimension of the threshold, the qualitative dimension, as I said, might be even more important in practice. I had alluded to the existing controversies surrounding the prohibition of the use of force. It is certainly true to say that the prohibition of the use of force enshrined in Article 2.4 and in customary international law uh, has an undisputable 
core content, where no reasonable public international lawyer would argue with another. But it is also fair to say, and a look in um, uh, every public international textbook uh, will enlighten us about it, that there are a number of categories of the use of force in the interstate relations where controversies among reasonable public international lawyers and states exist. Some of those controversies go back virtually uh, to the uh, entry into existence of the United Nations Charter. And the idea here again was to make it very clear to the judges of the International Criminal Court that it is not their task to somehow try to achieve clarity and agreement where this agreement among states does not yet exist, but rather to recognize that this is a gray area, an existing gray area uh, in international law and as an international criminal court to stay out of this gray legal area. And this is all the more important as these controversies are not just technical legal controversies, but these are controversies with deep underlying political um, conflicts that still persist. And it would overburden an um, international criminal court to get involved in those political controversies. I would like to uh, mention two examples first to illustrate what I mean. Take the case of anticipatory self-defense. There is a long-standing controversy about the question whether the right of self-defense as recognized in Article 51 extends to a response or a reaction to an imminent armed attack by another state. There are classical opposing views between recognized international law professors held here and states, it is fair to say, disagree on this issue with valid arguments on both sides until this day. The threshold, the requirement of a manifest violation of the United Nations Charter makes it clear that the ICC is not to decide on this question. To uh, mention a second example which has become more relevant in um, recent years or I should say recent decades is the question of responses to armed attacks by non-state actors. The question whether the concept of armed attack within Article 51 uh, can be applied to uh, violent action of non-state actors under certain circumstances. This is again um, a question where it is probably fair to say that not yet a consolidated agreement has emerged and that uh, arguments um, with um, a reasonable public international law quality are held on both sides. Again, uh, it would be unwise to ask the International Criminal Court at this moment in time uh, to get involved into this debate. Here again, um, the qualifier 
the threshold in Article 8 bis uh, would play an important role. And the third example, perhaps the most um, difficult and challenging one, is the one which I have already mentioned in the first part of my lecture. This is humanitarian uh, intervention in a situation of dire need where the Security Council has proven uh, unable to provide an authority um, to use protective force. Here again, I would argue that a genuine action of humanitarian intervention in such an extreme case um, falls outside the definition of the crime by virtue of the threshold. And it is um, certainly fair to say that without this having been said explicitly, um, the case of humanitarian intervention very much formed the background um, of the negotiations um, about the threshold. What are the um, key considerations in a very condensed form uh, to say that humanitarian intervention in such a case is not covered? So the starting point uh, here uh, would be to say that, and this can be say, uh, stated with um, much confidence, international criminal law with respect to aggression has not developed to a point where genuine humanitarian intervention would be included, would be covered by this um, criminal law under customary international law. And I mentioned um, a minute earlier that the threshold has the important function to ensure that the treaty definition of the crime of aggression does not go beyond customary international law, but is interpreted in conformity with custom. And when it comes uh, to the question of a manifest violation of the United Nations Charter, while it is true to say that there is no explicit exception for a genuine humanitarian intervention in the United Nations Charter, this there is no denying that uh, such an ex uh, exception is not present. It is also fair to recognize that a very complex state practice has developed with respect to humanitarian intervention over the last decades, in particular since 1990. A state, part, uh, a state practice so complex that it also raises difficult methodological um, questions for public international lawyer how to correctly assess this state practice. This is precisely what should not be done by the international criminal law in arriving at a criminal conviction. The International Criminal Court should acknowledge that the development of state practice is such that also humanitarian intervention in very limited extreme cases has entered into a gray area and therefore falls outside the um, criminalization. So here you have um, three uh, examples of how this important threshold requirement would operate. Once again, extremely important in order to reach a compromise about the substantive definition first, uh, and second, extremely important to ensure that the treaty definition of the crime is one that conforms with existing customary uh, international law.
as I said, the um, formulation of the individual conduct requirement posed uh, significantly less problems uh, to negotiators. The um, language used is um, uh, to a large extent based on the traditional language of the London Agreement underlying the Nuremberg Trials. So what is required but also sufficient is that the individual concerned participates in the state conduct element at one of the following stages, planning, preparation, initiation and execution of um, a state act of aggression being manifestly in violation of the United Nations Charter. Now it is important to state uh, that we are not talking here about each and every possible individual official of a state. And at this point we come to another peculiar aspect of the crime of aggression. The first being that it requires state conduct and the second, the one we are dealing with now, uh, being that the individual concerned must qualify as a state leader. And this is a fairly stringent requirement. Uh, it must be uh, an individual which is in a position to um, basically to operate at the policy to help determining the policy, in, in that case the criminal policy of the state concerned. The most important practical consequence of the crime of aggression being a leadership crime is that the ordinary soldier is not included in the scope of criminal action. Which means that even a soldier which uh, fights for the aggressor state on the side of the aggressor would not be internationally criminal if he or she fights in conformity with the law of international armed conflict. It would fall outside the scope of the crime of aggression and if he or she obeys with the law of international armed conflict, he or she would also not commit a war crime. This is a very important uh, consequence of the crime of aggression being construed as a leadership crime. When it comes to the um, details in which I uh, will not go uh, in great length, uh, it is important to note that under the existing um, ICC statutes regulation, um, ICC judges will have to, to um, distinguish between leaders on the one hand who participate as perpetrators in the crime of aggression under Article 253 uh, litera A and leaders who, in inverted commas, merely participate as um, secondary perpetrators or accomplices. This is a distinction that will not be very easy to be drawn in practice, but it is a distinction that the negotiators uh, have specifically instructed judges to draw by making Article 25.3 applicable to the crime of aggression as it applies to the other crimes under the ICC statute.
Let me move from there to the um, thorny uh, area of entry into force and um, jurisdiction, conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction over the crime. With respect to the um, entry into force, the legal picture is clear. Um, the Kampala amendments enter into force for each state individually um, by virtue of this state's ratification or acceptance of the Kampala amendments and one year thereafter. What is more challenging um, and demanding, uh, this is the question of the um, conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction by the court over the crime. But here again it is important to be, uh, to state at the outset that in one respect the legal picture is very clear. We have to distinguish between, on the one hand, a Security Council-based exercise of jurisdiction and, on the other hand, um, a, an exercise of jurisdiction triggered by a state referral or a proprio moto investigation by the prosecutor. Whenever the Security Council refers a situation to the court, which may include um, a crime of aggression. The jurisdiction of the court is universal. The question of ratification, acceptance of the state's concern, be it the alleged victim state or the um, aggressor state, is irrelevant. Article 13b, in conjunction with Article 12, applies as it does with regard to the other crimes listed uh, in the ICC statute. The situation is more complicated only where the Security Council has not taken action and where uh, criminal proceedings before the ICC are triggered either um, by a state referral or by a proprio moto investigation by the prosecutor. And here states have, state parties have decided to establish on the basis of Article 5.2 of the original ICC statute, a jurisdictional regime sui generis. That means a jurisdictional regime which differs from that applying with respect to the other crimes listed in Article 5. And what are the key differences? The first difference um, applies with respect to conduct of non-state parties. Wherever the allegation of a crime of aggression arises from an act of aggression committed by a non-state party, meaning a party which has not ratified the Rome Statute as such, the court will inevitably be precluded from exercise jurisdiction. There simply will not be room for the court's exercise of jurisdiction. This is a partial deviation 
from the jurisdictional scheme which would apply otherwise. So we are left with cases of alleged acts of aggression between state parties. And here the principle is clear. And this principle um, again operates a bit differently from um, the usual regime. The basic principle is also in this case the jurisdiction of the ICC is based on the consent of those states concerned. Now the question is how is this consent articulated? Again, one statement um, is completely undisputed and clear. Every state party has the right to make a declaration that the court should not exercise its jurisdiction about its nationals or on its territory with regard to alleged crimes of aggression. This is clear. This is a formulation uh, included in Article 15 bis paragraph 4 of the ICC statute. A controversy, however, arose right after the adoption of the Kampala amendments uh, in cases were such an opt-out as it has been referred to, the, the word opt-out is not mentioned as such uh, in Article 15 bis, but it is a formulation widely used in cases where such a declaration has not been made. And the, um, the much di discussed case uh, is where we have a um, alleged victim state which has ratified the Kampala Amendments and an alleged aggressor state party which has not and which has also not made a declaration under Article 15 bis 4. Here two views emerged right after Kampala. The first being that the court in such a situation would be precluded from exercise its jurisdiction for the reason that the alleged aggressor state party had not ratified or accepted the amendments. This view is based on the premise that the second sentence of Article 121.5 applies. A second view differed and argued that in such a situation the court would be entitled to exercise its jurisdiction. This view is based uh, on the assumption that um, the second sentence of Article 121, Paragraph 5 has been, so to speak, superseded by the very language of the Kampala Amendments and based on the authority of Article 
5 paragraph 2 of the original ICC statute, which, so the argument goes, gave state parties the power to come up with a special jurisdictional regime. And this, so this argument further um, develops, this special jurisdictional regime required that the alleged aggressor state, in our, ex in our example, would have made this specific declaration referred to in Article 15 bis 4 to indicate to the court that the court should not exercise jurisdiction in that case. And according to this view, this, it has sometimes said, this softened consent-based regime was the essential bridge which enabled compromise on jurisdiction to emerge in Kampala. So it was precisely and only this single controversy which occupied so much time in the final stage of the negotiations on the legal regime of Kampala, more precisely, um, which occupied so much time during the process preparing for the um, activation of the court's jurisdiction. And this is basically what the um, um, activation decision um, taken earlier today uh, is about, apart from the fact that it activates the court jurisdiction. And uh, here it is important that included uh, in this um, activation decision is an operative paragraph which basically confirms by specific language uh, the more narrow view that um, in order for the court to exercise jurisdiction also the alleged aggressor state must have ratified or accepted the amendments. This, the inclusion of this paragraph, it was uh, heavily disputed. It formed subject to um, very complicated, difficult negotiations. This was the concession that the a large number of states with a heavy heart in the, aid, in the end made to allow the decision uh, over the activation um, of the court's jurisdiction to happen. It was a compromise made with a heavy heart because it was felt in the end that the historic achievement to allow this activation to happen by consensus was more important than to insist uh, on a position of, from a practical perspective, comparatively limited significance, because it is uh, altogether unclear whether the court in uh, its future jurisprudence will ever be confronted with this uh, legal issue that I've now uh, tried to set out in um, detail. What follows from all this um, is the fact that the requirements for the court's exercise of jurisdiction are very stringent, which makes it clear that 
aggression cases before the ICC in the future um, are very likely to be a rare exception. And it is also clear, and I think we have to uh, acknowledge this, that this um, jurisdictional regime, as it is applicable now, um, falls short of the um, aspiration of full equality in the enforcement of international um, criminal law against aggression. However, um, it is to be hoped that over time more and more states, parties which have not yet done so uh, will come and ratify the Kampala amendments. Uh, they may do so as the application um, of the law through the organs of the, co uh, of the court evolves and um, uh, in the course of this application the court might um, offer even more clarity of uh, how the substantive definition is to be applied. So it is to be hoped that over time uh, more and more states will ratify the Kampala amendments. For those states who um, for those states who set in judgment in Nuremberg, it would only mean to fully embrace their own legacy, the legacy of the creative president of Nuremberg. And um, the famous promise that the um, American chief prosecutor Robert Jackson made in Nuremberg still resonates today and perhaps even more after the decision about the activation was taken. He said, the ultimate step in avoiding periodic wars, which are inevitable in a system of international lawlessness, is to make statesmen responsible to law. And let me make clear that while this is first applied against German aggressors, the law includes and if it is to serve a useful purpose, it must condemn aggression by other nations, including those which sit here now in judgment.